0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Fatima Goss-Graves, the president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center. She joins me to discuss the coronavirus outbreak and how the pandemic will uniquely affect women, women who are, of course, on the front lines as essential workers. We also discuss the child care crisis, and we talk about a recent report published by the National Women's Law Center on the investment needed to adequately fund the country's child care needs. So here is my conversation with Fatima Goss-Graves. Fatima Goss-Graves, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So happy to be here. So we are about two to three months, I think, into the pandemic. And that sounds so surreal to say out loud. But, you know, the economic fallout has been really swift, right? It's been head spinning. There have been millions of people out of work, you know, overnight, right? But we're just starting to parse through... Which group specifically will be hit the hardest economically? But I want to specifically talk about women. Can you give me a quick summary of what the picture looks like for women right now economically?
1: You know, a crisis like the one we are in is going to always reveal inequalities that existed before. One of the things that we know is that about one in three women who are working are considered essential workers. And that's in part because women are disproportionately in the healthcare system both as nurses, doctors, and also in nursing homes. But it is also because women work in retail and in um, manufacturing jobs like at Amazon. So they are disproportionately cashiers in big box stores that have stayed open. And on the front lines, you'll see them on the street doing things like delivering mail and, and so as a result, it's about one in three of women who are working right now are, are, are right now frontline essential workers and working without hazard pay, working without the protective equipment to ensure that they can work with safety. And at the same time, when we look at who lost their jobs quickly, we know that women disproportionately have lost their jobs over the last two months, and that's especially true for Black and brown women. And part of the reason that is, again, is job segregation. It's where women work. So Women make up a disproportionate number of people who work in restaurants that had to close and close quickly, a disproportionate number of people who work as um, housekeepers in hotels, who, who work in small retail, who work as domestic workers and And we're talking about jobs where people aren't working and sitting on a huge safety net to begin with. These are all jobs that were already in the lowest paid fields, and where women were working in many, many states just for seven twenty five an hour trying to scrape by enough hours. So what you have is that, about forty percent of the people who were working in those jobs, about forty percent of the women who were working in those fields were already basically working full-time and making poverty wages before the pandemic. and so if you if you're picturing frontline workers, if you're lucky enough, and I probably have lucky in quotes, but you can't see me on a podcast to work. Um, and deep and sharp unemployment, At the same time, women are more likely to be caregivers and co or sole breadwinners. And we are in a time where the care crisis that we have right now around people who have either been forced to work in this period outside the home or who have been working from home, but also parenting and homeschooling is largely being ignored. And as states race to reopen without a plan, a big part of the problem with having no plan is you haven't figured out what are people going to do about having to go back to work without schools, without summer camps, without childcare. Exactly. That's a huge piece
0: because, you know, when you look at the stories about people who are rushing to get out in these states that have opened or starting to open early, you know, what are the pictures of? They're of people who are sitting in restaurants, sitting in bars. And who are the people who are on the front line serving them? Primarily women. And those women have children at home and they're responsible for child care. And, you know, they don't have the child care safety net there to help them. Um I, I wasn't gonna say. Anything. <laughs> I can tell if you were gonna say something. But well, I was, I
1: was just, gonna just gonna say, period. That's right. We're <laughs>
0: lacking child care and safety net to help. Yeah, but one of the numbers you mentioned—it's one third of the essential workers are women right now. The, the
1: positions that have been deemed to be essential, one third of those are women. Well, it's one in three women who work are essential workers. So it's in the, in in some ways it's an even larger percentage. So it's not that women are spread in so many, many different occupations. One third of them are actually frontline workers right now. I think we have this image in our head that there's some tiny percentage of people who are out there on the front lines and, um, and everyone else is not for women that's very much not the case. They are on the front lines right now in really large proportions. And those are just the ones that we're talking about who are working frontline out there right now We're not even talking about the many people who are also working from home. Everyone's struggling with care crisis.
0: Right, exactly. And I think it's actually, and I don't know if we have numbers on this, but I would imagine that it's exactly the opposite. The majority of people, they don't have the luxury of working from home, especially women, because the people who can work from home generally easily People who have higher positions, executive positions, you know, people who work in technology, you know, not the people who are on the front lines working in service type industries and in healthcare and in child care. Those people are not
1: at home. And if we think about being at home while you're actually parenting is not a small thing. Right. And it is one thing if this was just a week or two, but we're not even sure if schools are going to reopen in the fall. So what we're actually talking about right now is a really long-term care crisis on our hands.
0: Right. So one of the things that I know that the NWLC recently did, um, the National Women's Law Center recently did a report looking at the levels of poverty for women. And this was just outside of the pandemic, because I think you were looking at data from 2018, so two years ago. At a time when the economy was considered to be great, right? Unemployment numbers were low. But your report said that when you have numbers like that, it masks these gender disparities that we were just talking about. How does it do that?
1: Well, one of the things that I think people don't pay a lot of attention to is where it is that people are working. So even as women were gaining jobs over the last decade, we were gaining jobs in a lot of low-paid fields that didn't provide full-time hours all the time and where the conditions, the job conditions, didn't allow people to do things like save, let alone have the sorts of fair schedules or benefits to be able to do things like care and work, which most women do. And so... It, you know When we look at what has happened, the last decade, job gains have largely been wiped out over the last two months, and that's especially true for Black women. And the reason you're able to see that is because there was a lot of job gains in areas like restaurant and retail and hospitality. So those sectors were never paying women very well in the first place. So as we think about what recovery looks like it's really clear to me that we need to think about not only job creation, but what what type of jobs are we creating? Are they the sort of jobs where people can actually support themselves and their families, or are they the jobs that leave them vulnerable from crisis to crisis?
0: You know, that's really interesting because the period that you're talking about is, you know, pre-Trump. It's you know the pre-Trump days where you know the economy did recover from the the Bush recession or was recovering from the Bush recession or sorry, I should say the Great Recession. And you know, again, things looked great economically. And I remember when the Lilly Ledbetter Act passed, the Fair Pay Act. I was really excited about that and. a lot of people, there were a few voices out there saying, you know, but let's look at the jobs that are being, that are being created. There are lots of jobs, but let's look at the jobs that were being created, but that wasn't the front page headline really.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I, you know, I I was really lucky enough to be a part of getting the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act done. And I remember the promise of having the first bill that the president signed be squarely about gender equality. I think it spoke to the direction and hope for the work. But one of the things that we know is it matters where you work. And it matters the sorts of conditions of work and the types of environment that you're able to set. So we're now in a in a moment where we have had the most animated set of ideas coming from the women's movement in really a generation. People are out there demanding that their experiences at work and beyond be different. They're saying Me Too. They're saying Times Up. They're saying that they expect their institutions and policymakers to respond. And that is totally exciting. And in this moment, you also realize how fragile it all is. So it is is—it is times like these when we're Dealing with such urgent situations where abuse can be rampant, where discrimination is rampant, where people aren't paid the wages that they earn, let alone get enough hours to be able to support their families.
0: And do you think that the gains that were made due to bills like that will be undone due to the
1: pandemic? Well, so here is the thing. I think times like these, we are at meaningful pivot points. We will either recognize what it means that we have now deemed all of these people essential and treat them as such, ensuring that they can work with safety and with dignity, or we will walk away from that obligation and i really believe that that you know this is why we have to stay on a heightened alert around it i believe now more than ever is the time to demand a wage that is fair and matches the dignity of this work now more than ever is the time to demand that people be able to work with safety with dignity that they not have to deal with abusive co-workers and bosses just to get a paycheck. And now more than ever is a time to demand that women be able to actually do what most do, which is actually engage in care and work and that we have systems to support both.
0: Right. You know, I think the report, your report also points out a few misconceptions about women in these groups who are in low wage work. Right. Especially about their age, for instance, you know, a lot of people assume that these are college students. Right. But nine in 10 women of the low paid workforce are over age 20. And also about the education. Many of them have a a large percentage. Actually, I think it's 45 percent have some college education and a lot of them are parents. And that's another misconception that I think helps shape the conversation around you know, these jobs.
1: The old narratives it, that has allowed the minimum wage to not change in well over a decade has been that these are just sort of casual jobs that young people hold. I just want to add that even if these were just casual jobs that young people held, it's outrageous that we have not shifted the minimum wage in so many, many, many years, uh, but it is also just factually incorrect, right? That um, young people are in these jobs, but many older people are in the jobs too, and that many of them are women. Two thirds of minimum wage workers are women. Two-thirds of tipped workers are women, and they are supporting themselves and in many cases supporting their families on these wages that have not budged. And many are having multiple jobs, doing their best to get enough hours when you have schedules that change from week to week. So our picture, the story in our head of Who is in these particular jobs, who's working in retail, who's working in hospitality is a story that doesn't actually match reality, which is why I've actually really appreciated the language of essential, understanding that people who are working as cashiers, that they're essential, that people who are working and engaging in care work and as nursing aides, those folks are essential. So I live in Washington State, and we're one of the first states,
0: I believe we might have been the first state to pass the $15 minimum wage. And it feels like that happens. And there was, you know, a victory party, and we haven't really revisited that. And I understand there are lots of things distracting everyone. But but you're right, it just feels like it's unfortunate that we haven't gone back there. And, you know, I really don't see that conversation happening anytime soon, but you're right. This is the time to have it while we're talking about what groups of people have been affected due to this pandemic.
1: Right. And, you know, Washington state and I think the Seattle area came first, first. And some states have also moved ahead and are slowly doing the march. Um, but for most of the country, they're nowhere close. And, You know, last year, the House of Representatives, for the first time, not only passed a minimum wage bill that got to $15 an hour, it also importantly included principles of one fair wage so that tipped workers were guaranteed the minimum wage paid by their employers and their tips would be on top you know, imagine if that were in place right now. If ma- imagine if workers had that important security. Unfortunately, that bill has not moved forward in the Senate. It has joined the sort of graveyard of bills from Mitch McConnell. Um, but, it, you know, th- this really underscores how important it is that we move these policies along in times of prosperity, not only in times of crisis. We'll mm-hmm.
0: about another analysis that the NWLC put out about the amount that needs to be invested into childcare due to the pandemic. And I think that your estimate is somewhere around, you know, nine and a half billion dollars. Are we investing anything close to that in the current stimulus packages? I, I'm going to assume no.
1: <laughs> so, and I just want to give one more slight correction because it was nine billion dollars a month over the next over the <laughs> next. Six months. So we really are talking about something closer to the order of $50 billion, which is an an eye-popping number (laughs) and one that I think probably scares people. But let me tell you the situation that we're in. And about half of our child care centers are closed right now. And our deep worry is that many will never reopen. And... It, these are not the sort of small businesses that can shift on a dime and that can just sort of one period decide they're open and another period decide they're not. And these also are not the sorts of places that can stay open with a model where you're only serving a handful of kids. If you're a child care center that typically has 30 children, and now you have five, the numbers don't work out for you to be able to be open without support. So we're in this situation where states are racing with plans to reopen while child care centers are closing, some never planning to reopen. We have to figure this out, and it's going to cost money. We worked with an economist to give an estimate about what it will take to sustain the child care system through this period of time, and the, and the answer is it's about $9 billion a month. And for parents who are right now losing their jobs rapidly and working with deep worry if they haven't lost their jobs. We realize this is not some individual problem that parents have to figure out on their own. There was already a child care shortage going into this pandemic. And it is my deep worry that we are not going to have a real system to come back to.
0: No, that's really scary. And I laughed earlier because I knew that we weren't investing nine and a half billion dollars. But then when you said monthly... Like, <laughs> like, you know, I know that, you know, we're. I mean, they're giving twelve hundred
1: dollars stimulus <laughs> checks. Right. So, I mean, let's be real about what the investment has been so far. So far, there's been three billion dollars invested in child care to go to essential centers. Um, and so we're not even scratching the surface around what the system needs, even in the HEROES Act that passed the House last week and did a lot of important things. It closed some loopholes in terms of covering more workers and ensuring more families would be able to get access to payments. It only included $7 billion for child care, so basically not enough to get through a month. Of need right now, you know. I'm not sure if people have in their heads that it that women magically will really do it all. That they will somehow work while providing care and schooling for their kids. Uh, it, it is not possible. If we are to have a meaningful response to this pandemic and a meaningful idea around what it will look like to reopen and recover. We must deal with the care crisis.
0: This is a crisis. Um, I, so I'm just curious. I was thinking about that number and thinking about what you were saying about many of the the centers not reopening. And then just thinking about, you know, some of the restaurants opening or some States that are opening now and the women who have to go back to work and the need for childcare, you know, even men who, you know, need childcare as well. I just, It just seems like a lot of different angles. It seems insurmountable given the amount that's already been invested right now. Let's say magically something happened and you got $9 billion a month. Where does that go right now? What does it go for?
1: So one of the things that's different from other sectors of the economy that we're trying to figure out is the child care system already has a funding stream. There's the child care development block grant that gives money already to every state in the country, and it allows for providers and families to be able to have care, and it serves mostly low-income, some of the lowest-income families. There's a huge wait list to be able to get into this sort of care already, right? So again, this is an example of going into this pandemic we already had a problem that we weren't fully addressing. We can use that mechanism to fund child care at a level that will allow providers to stay open and for families as they're beginning to reopen and recover and continue their job search to have care. How much of this do you
0: think will have to wait until there's a shift in the balance of power, right? I mean, the thing that's really holding a lot of this back is the Senate right now, right? And you said, you know, the thing, the bills are dying on McConnell's desk, you know, and the executive branch. I mean, you know, how much is this going to have to depend on
1: that? You know, the last few weeks, we have seen the most odd debate imaginable in D.C., right where you have some portions of congress talking about the families that are standing in food lines for hours to get food talking about the people who can't afford their rent talking about the small businesses that have shuttered and what are we going to do and you and you and you begin to think oh maybe people are understanding the depths of this crisis And then you have others who are resorting to the same old worn and torn tactics of demonizing people with low income, except we are going into rates of unemployment that is unprecedented. And we don't know how long this is going to last or what the other side looks like because this was all triggered by a global pandemic. All of this you know, but I think we almost have to remind ourselves every single day how historic these numbers are. It's historic that we've had 36 million people file for unemployment claims in just two months. It's historic that we are lurching towards rates of unemployment that are going to go to over 20% and that we're doing it in the midst of an acute health crisis, so it requires Congress to do some things that they may not want to do. You may be someone who came to Congress not believing in government. You know what? This is not an individual problem. We need government as part of the solution here. I was reading something the other day about,
0: you know, a comparable health crisis, but not really the same, you know, polio where, you know, things were shut down for years until they had a vaccine. You know, but I think if, if my numbers are correct, I think that we have already lost the number of people to the coronavirus outbreak than we did to all of the years before we had the the polio vaccine. So this is really, really unprecedented. And I think it's just a lot for people to to digest. It is for me, just, just talking it through.
1: Yeah, I, I think when we think about the health crisis that we are facing, and especially for brown and black communities that have both been hit tremendously hard, in part because they are are more likely to be frontline workers, are more likely to live in densely populated cities. And at the same time, we have a health system that has allowed for there to be health disparities over time. So, you know, it's no accident that we're seeing differences in health outcomes, because we always see differences in health outcomes based on uninsurance rates being different, based on your ability to have a relationship with a provider, a primary provider, your access to high-quality hospital care. Those are things that are problems that have been brewing and lurking under the surface that you have been hearing about, and they are at our doorstep now with almost 90,000 people who have lost their lives in just two months. And we can never forget that part of it, that that we are dealing with this level of loss as a nation. That has to guide us through. If policymakers think that there is an easy way out of this, there's not. There's been grief, there's been loss, And it is only deeper and more exacerbated by the unemployment and pain that families are, are, are feeling. And that requires their leadership. It does, you know, and
0: speaking of people of color, those disparities were already there. And it just kind of, when I think about this, this is one of the things that's kind of overwhelming for me, because when I think back on the recession that we just recovered from, the Bush recession. And, you know, there are reports that saying, you know, some of these families, black and brown families, will never recover in their lifetimes from the economic fallout from that. And now they're being hit again with this. But then I think about that and then I think about, you know, and we're also just trying to keep them alive because they're on the front lines and they're the ones who are being exposed
1: you know, more often to the virus. And it's just a lot to think about. So, Well, it is, but we can also think about how do we not make some of the mistakes of the past? That it is not going to be enough to level set people back to the position they were in before March of 2020. March of 2020 wasn't serving everyone well. March of 2020 required us to look deeply at a lot of families anyway and think about how to improve their lives. We need to be thinking about how do we have a transformational process that leaves people in a different place. But do
0: you agree that part of the problem, and I know that we need our leaders to step up, we need Congress to step up and, you know, hopefully that will happen. But do you also think that, you know, considering the disparities that were in place before the pandemic, that this is also deeper in that it's a cultural problem, right? It's like, who do we value in our society? Who do we value? What work do we value? Do we value women's work? Um, and that just seems deeper than a stimulus package to me. And I'm not really sure how one would address that.
1: I, I don't disagree with you. I think we have some of what is, what is some of the work we need to do to address the most acute harms. And, and that is how I've seen these last couple of packages. They are acknowledgement of the deep pain that people are in and trying to drive some solutions, but going forward, we're going to have to do more than just address the deepest of pain. The conversation we have been having now around who is essential is an important one and one that we should not let go. Who are the most important people to you in your life and how do we treat those people How do we ensure that in reality, they can work with safety and dignity and equity, that they can take care of their family and their loved ones, that their ability to thrive is not upended every few years? And if we start there, we can have some solutions that are policy solutions, yes, but also some cultural solutions that can make a real, real difference.
0: I mean, would it take something as big as, you know, to make a a huge cultural shift quickly? You know, I mean, maybe there's some legal precedence. You know, I'm thinking like some kind of landmark case about inequality like Roe v. Wade did for abortion rights.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. We are we are in a middle of a a legal debate of sorts around who gets to decide whether or not people have to work with safety or not. I mean, that was some of the litigation that you saw coming out of Wisconsin, where the Supreme Court actually overruled the governor's stay-at-home order, which was in place because around safety for the public. We also are seeing the exploration of adding things that we haven't seen applied to all workers before. For the first time in the CARES Act, we had a universal paid sick day and paid family leave program. That is unprecedented. We have been for long holding on to the idea that the United States was one of the few Uh, developed nations without paid sick days. So, you know, even though there's a time limit on it, we actually came up with a national paid plan. And I think there's going to be meaningful litigation over whether or not that continues. And then the last thing that I will say is there are really rich issues revealed by this pandemic around how it is we make determinations overall. Where do we put our public dollars? And what do we see as a universal and public good versus sort of an individual thing that people just need to figure out? And that tug and pull might might go back and forth on, on those questions. But right now, for example, it is hard to argue that things like childcare and public health are individual ideas, right? Our economy will not function without having a care solution. My public safety and my individual health and well-being is totally dependent on what the grocery store down the street does, on what my neighbors do, on what the public does. And so we are not some disconnected set of individuals who just so happen to be in the same city. Uh, We have come together as bodies, as cities, as counties, states, and as a federal government. And And this is really testing who we are as a nation. We are not just a a bunch of individuals who are showing up around the same time. So I'm listening
0: to this, and I'm a person who is moved by everything that I've learned and everything that you've said, and I want to make a difference beyond my vote, right? what is the one thing that i can do
1: well for sure voting matters and so i don't want to i don't want people to forget it especially this year where people are going to have to vote during a global pandemic so people are going to have to figure out new ways of voting there will be people who are doing absentee voting for the first time so the act of voting is actually a really courageous and important act um, as is the act of getting others to vote, right? So it's not just enough for you to vote, take your friends and family with you. And even if that take is is a virtual take, reminding virtually your friends and family to do their absentee ballots or to vote early. Um, and so I, the act of voting this year is is so, so hugely important. So is holding electeds accountable. And if there is something that I have learned in this last couple of months is that electeds want to hear from people. They care what their constituents think. And hearing that it is either important for you to ensure people can work with safety and dignity, important for you to ensure that we have a child care system, those are things that we need to remind our electeds about again and again, even if you think they're going to do the right thing, but especially if you think they might not. Well, Fatima, Goss Graves,
0: thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for all of the incredible work that you're doing at the National Women's Law Center. And just thank you. I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you for listening. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner, and of course I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please help The Electorate grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorate is by following The Electorate on social media. That's at Electorat on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.